The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. There's too many people walking around with plastic faces. Too many children hanging in the wrong places. Too many dirty cops controlling ghetto blocks. Too many fistfights ending in shots. Too many girls taking to wrong paths. It's not too late to do the math. A poem by Maureen Brainerd Barnes. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club Podcast, Episode 24. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill, and I'm still going solo for a little bit longer. Tara is neck deep in work, but I expect she'll be digging out shortly. For those of you who are just turning in, we are a real-life true crime book club turned podcast. And while we do the heavy lifting, we encourage you to read along with us. We like to summarize each bowl we pull off our murder shelf, and we follow along in the author's footsteps, and of course, we wind up giving you analysis and our opinions. You can anticipate three episodes for each book, the first two going through the book, and our third, which we dubbed Second Cast, where we examine topics, threads, things that we didn't get to cover in the first couple episodes. We hope you're feeling good, doing well, staying safe, and thank you for listening and reading along with us. Murder Bookies, we did a mini-cast on this, but in case you missed it, here's a very brief synopsis of the good news for Patricia Owens and her family. You'll recall a story from episode 23 on family annihilators, the murders of the high school teenagers Amina and Sarah Saeed. Their father, Yasser Saeed, abhorred their too-American lifestyle and felt his grip of control starting to slip. So he allegedly shot his daughters to death in the back of his cab, snuffing out these beautiful young women's lives before they really had a chance to begin. One of America's most wanted, Yasser Saeed was on the run for 12 years, aided by his son Islam and brother Yasin. Yasser was captured in August 2021, and he'll stand trial later this year, maybe next year. Son Islam Saeed has been sentenced to 10 years for helping conceal his father from the authorities. And June 4, 2021, brother of Yasser, Yasin Saeed, was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Acting U.S. Attorney Preprek Shah stated, Yasin Saeed prioritized the comfort of his brother, an alleged murderer, over justice for his nieces, two innocent teenagers, on the brink of adulthood. No sentence can bring Sarah and Amina back. We are hopeful that seeing justice served brings a measure of comfort to those who love these two young souls. We fully agree. So, Murder Bookies, I also apologize for this late episode, but I have really good reason. I just attended Virtual Crime Con Austin 2021, and once again, it was remarkable. A big thank you to the organizers who brought out the dream schedule for all of our true crimers who are eager for more knowledge, insight, and greater understanding. 
Hearing that serial killer guy, Dr. John White, was a highlight for me. He knows more about serial killers than anybody I have ever met that simple. I admire him so much. And then, Kerry Rostin, author of The Serial Killer's Daughter, her dad is BTK. She blew everyone away with her down-to-earth stories and observations. Kim Goldman, sister of Ron Goldman, killed with Nicole Brown Simpson back in 1994 by, I believe anyway, O.J. Simpson. The woman had me in tears bawling my eyes out. If you haven't listened to Kim Goldman's podcast, Confronting O.J. Simpson, I highly recommend it. Dr. Phil. Yes, yes, Dr. Phil. He was absolutely fantastic presenting on the psychology of evil. Riveting. I just hung on every word. And Detective Gil Carrillo spoke on the investigation and capturing of serial killer Richard Ramirez. Again, I could have stayed there all day listening to Gil, and you feel like you can call him Gil after this. By the way, if you want to know more about Ramirez, listen to episode 20, Second Cast, Gone at Midnight, Cecil Hotel, Haunts and Hallows, and Serial Killers. I'm sure we'll eventually do a book on Ramirez because he is really unique and he's evil as hell. I don't mean to leave anyone out because all the presentations at CrimeCon were incredible. There's not a bad presentation in the bunch. This one I'm going to mention, though. The Unmaking of a Murderer, a conversation with defense attorney Lauren Nyrider about Brendan Dassey, an intellectually limited young 16-year-old who was interrogated by police without his parents three times in 24 hours, four times in 48 hours. Yeah, and you probably guessed it. He made a confession, in air quotes, to murdering with his uncle, Stephen Avery. Yeah, yeah. That's Stephen Avery of, you know, making of a murderer. Brandon's case is complex, but this coerced confession basically did him in, and he was sentenced to life in prison. The Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth got involved trying to overturn the conviction, and they actually won, but then a court reversed the decision. So Brandon remains in jail. He's now in his 30s. Now, I'm backing reform that requires the police not to lie to children when interviewing or interrogating them, especially children with disabilities, for God's sakes. I also believe that parents need to be present, and then finally, that all, all interrogations need to be recorded. Fortunately, Brandon's is, which is why we know it was coerced. So, if you would like to make a difference in Brandon's sentence, and make it a little bit easier, his address is on our blog. Write and give this man some hope. This kind of situation just breaks my heart. I really want to convict the bad guys. I do not want to convict the convenient guys. It just upsets me. How many kids and teenagers have this kind of story? Just way too many. All right, rant over. Let's get to our story for today. So what are we pulling off our murder shelf today? Today, we're pulling off Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery by Robert Kolker. Kolker opens Lost Girls with a description of the barrier islands of Long Island, a quote, a featureless stretch between Jones Beach and Fire Island, a narrow strip of Martian dune, Bramble and Beach, and you can tell when you're alone, unquote. In a brief, disjointed account from May of 2021, we see the events that kick off the start of a series of terrible discoveries. Michael Pack drove his black Ford Explorer through the dark of Gilgo Beach, 
with a young woman, pretty, blonde, seated in the back. Her name is Shannon Gilbert. They pull up to a gate, and someone comes out to meet them. With the same breath, Coker describes Shannon running from house to house, pounding on the doors, screaming at the top of her lungs. A resident of this secluded neighborhood, Gus Coletti, he appears to bear witness to this erratic behavior displayed by this young woman who he doesn't know. He and other witnesses never open their doors to this distressed scarecrow shouting help into the night, but they do call 911. And when police do finally arrive, about 45 minutes after the first call, the girl's gone. And so is the man who drove her there. And the mystery begins. Seven months later, in December, the quiet stillness of Gilgo Beach is once again shattered. Police were on the scene where the bodies of four women were discovered. They thought that one of them must be the missing Shannon Gilbert. And they were wrong. The bodies uncovered that day were Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who had been last seen in 2007 at Penn Station in Manhattan, New York, Melissa Bartholomew, who disappeared in 2009 from the Bronx, Megan Waterman, last seen about a month before Shannon went missing in New York City, and finally, Amberlyn Costello, last seen in West Babylon in early 2010. The Gilgo Four. All were petite young women in their 20s, and had come to the area for work as escorts. They all used Craigslist and its competitor Backpage to advertise themselves to the world. When the girls disappeared, like so many others, it was their families who were left holding the pieces. Our society has told us that girls like these, escorts, prostitutes, sex workers, they don't matter. They're expendable. Colker wants to change your mind, and so do we. This is not a story about an unidentified Long Island serial killer, a.k.a. Lisk. This is a story of five young women, very human women, who have stories, lives shared, and it's also about the continued persistence to find them when they went missing by those they left behind. And there are more, many more than five. Now, the author for this series is Robert Coker, and he is first and foremost a journalist whose work can be read in New York Magazine, Bloomberg Business Week, New York Times Magazine, Wired, GQ, O, The Oprah Magazine, Men's Journal. He is a National Magazine Award finalist, and he received the John Jay College of Criminal Justice Harry Frank Guggenheim Award for Excellence in Criminal Justice Reporting. Coker wrote a story about a public school embezzlement scandal in 2004 for New York Magazine. And this was adapted into a movie called Bad Education, starring Hugh Jackman, and that aired on HBO last April in 2020. I looked that one up. Now, the book we we're discussing today, Lost Girls, was his first book released in 2013. And it's also been adapted into a movie called Lost Girls, which was released on Netflix last year, 2020, focusing on the Shannon Gilbert story. Colker also has another book out, released just last year, a very busy year for him, and it's called Hidden Valley Road. This is a true story that centers around the Galvins, an American family with 12 children. The oldest son, Don Galvin Jr., was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and then subsequently five of his brothers were as well. It looks like this is a deep dive into looking and understanding the nature of the disorder. With Lost Girls, Coker became a New York Times bestselling author, 
and Hidden Valley Road has also received him similar acclaim. I, I think we're going to hear from him in the future. Okay, guys, there are going to be some deep, dark episodes in this trilogy, so settle in murder bookies. To give you a sense of Long Island, not necessarily the dark side of Long Island either, I joined a Facebook group called the Long Island Foodies, because where could I get the best sense of a snack for our book club, after all, than to go to the expert themselves? And these ladies kindly accepted me in, and we talked a lot. And overwhelmingly, we decided that baked clams would be our appetizer today. So thank you very much, everyone at Long Island Foods. I got the recipe for the Long Island stuffed clams, which I posted on our blog from Riddle. And you can find that at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Now, as I usually do, I'm looking for easy prep because we are all always stressed out. Just seems for me anyway. Real simple. Saute the garlic, the onions, the oregano, tang breadcrumbs, parsley, and oil for about two minutes. You add in the clams, a bit of salt, mix. Uh, it's nice and warm. You scoop it into clam shells. You sprinkle with Parmesan cheese. You have a little bit of the leftover breadcrumb mix. Bake it for 25 to 30 minutes until the top gets that, you know, crusty cooking look. And sprinkle with some paprika. Serve it warm. And I promise you, this was definitely the one that best represented Long Island. Though the lox and bagel ran a close second, I have to tell you. Now, what are we going to drink with this? Well, Mortara here, she would have a perfectly balanced wine from a wonderful New York State winery, but I'm just not as good as she is. So since it's up to me, I hope it's not too hokey, but I'm just going with the Long Island iced tea, okay? Listen, you only need one. Made with rum, gin, tequila, triple sec, sweet and sour mix, and a little cola. I use the zero cola stuff personally. Top it off with a uh, slice of lime. Magic done. You have a delicious, refreshing summer drink. Perfect for the shore, the beach, the pool. Your cocktail is all set. Reminds you of real iced tea, but it does pack a wallop. So again, the recipes for both are on our blog. So, getting back to Lost Girls, it is important to note that this narrative is based on hundreds of hours of interviews with the victims' friends, family members, acquaintances, neighbors, law enforcement. All the events and dialogues not witnessed firsthand come from accounts and reports. Some of the names have been changed. So, we are going to deep dive into the stories of the murdered girls. And while we think we do have an unidentified serial killer on our hands, we also have the seedier side of the internet, the world of the escort business and sex work. In this version, we are going to have some of the later developments in the case and the shocking fate of one of the central characters that we're going to meet in the story. So grab your Long Island iced tea, your clams or whatever is at hand, and let's begin. Book one lays the foundation of just who our five victims are. This is where we get to know them as the people they were, not as victims of the Long Island serial killer, and certainly not as society and the police label them. Maureen Brainerd Barnes was described as winsome and girlish, with porcelain skin, dark tousled hair, green eyes that shifted from blue to gray and back, depending, it seems, on her mood. 
She grew up in a three-bedroom apartment in federally subsidized housing development in Groton, Connecticut. And Groton was known for its submarine manufacturing and more famously for Indian casinos in the area. Her mother, Marie Jarchemay, cleaned rooms at the local motel, and her father, Bob Senecal, he was mostly out of the picture, but he did stay with them from time to time. Marie was a serious parent, and Maureen took after her father, who was quick to make a joke and seemed a bit more relaxed. Marie would eventually take a job as one of the first employees at the Mohican Sun Casino as a slot attendant, and this afforded her an opportunity to purchase a reliable car, and she also took a second job cleaning offices, which is really good for the money, but she was almost never home. And Maureen, who was the eldest of three children, would wind up taking care of her brother and sister, Misty and Will. So they were often left to their own devices, eating frozen pizzas, or in the woods behind their home, sometimes sneaking into American billiards to play pool and to drink. Now, while Misty and Will were playing sports, Maureen would be found writing lyrics and poems in her notebook or typing her thoughts into her MySpace page. She'd often read rather than anything else. When she started getting the attention of boys, a lot of that changed a bit. Realizing her good looks, she ended up making enemies with girls at school, getting into fights. Okay, girl fights are the absolute worst. We all know this, right? So Maureen stopped going to school. When she became pregnant at 16, that is when school completely ended for her. Uh, her boyfriend at the time was Jason Brainerd Barnes, and he did right by her. They got married in a courthouse ceremony in 1999, shortly after she gave birth to their daughter, Caitlin. They moved in with Jason's grandparents in Pawtucket and ended up moving down south when Jason joined the army. Two years later, they returned, and unfortunately, the marriage fell apart. It was all rather amicable, and Maureen would more or less be the full-time custodian of Caitlin, living in Mystic, Connecticut, where the schools were thought to be better. Now, Maureen would end up living with her sister, Missy, for a time in low-income housing in Groton, and their brother, Will, was a frequent guest. So it was around Maureen's 21st birthday when her relationship with her sister kind of came to a breaking point. And it was also when her father, Bob, died, having fallen from a train trestle and drowned in a pool of water. Now, coming off that, Maureen is trying to make something of herself, and she would leave Caitlin with Missy more and more often. But she was just not settling for any old boring job, which meant she didn't have any money. Understandably, Missy would get really frustrated with her. But Maureen seemed to have a plan to make it on her own. Maureen always had a plan. So Maureen picked up a temporary position at a telemarketing firm called Atlantic Security around Christmas time. This is about 2006. And this is where she's going to meet Sarah Carnes. Both women hit it off immediately. I'm sure you know those types of relationships between women. Never seems to work like that with the men. It turns out that Sarah and Maureen had gone to the same high school, even though they didn't remember each other, and probably because she dropped out when she was 16. Anyway, Maureen at this point now has two children with two different fathers. She's really struggling to make ends meet. She just recently moved into a small apartment paid for by her son's father. And 
The job in Atlantic Security is definitely a step in the right direction towards financial freedom. But it is seasonal work, and both Sarah and Maureen are going to be let go within a few weeks of each other. Now the women stay in touch, but the money never, ever seems to be enough. And it was Maureen who came to Sarah one day with a proposition, an offer that Sarah decides to explore with her. Having recently taken modeling photos, Maureen had submitted them to a website called modelmayhem.com. She wasn't surprised when some sites started reaching out to her regarding nude photos, even escorting. What she found to be most interesting was the money, the sheer amount of money that some people were making, even when sex wasn't involved, or even if it was. The only catch was having to sign on with an escort service. Making a decision, she decided she was going into business for herself. She wasn't sharing her money with anyone. And that was when her first ad on Craigslist went. Lynn Bartholomew found herself pregnant at 16. Despite Lynn's father's anger when he found out about the pregnancy, it was her grandmother who told her not to marry Mark, the baby's father, just because she was pregnant. Being young, unmarried, and pregnant in Buffalo, New York, drew some questioning looks, especially when she decided to continue going to school with her peers. On April 14, 1985, Lynn gave birth to Melissa Mary Bethalney. Six weeks after Melissa was born, Lynn even went back to school and even got a job washing dishes. She was determined to make it on her own as a single mother. Her parents, Lynn and Elmer, agreed to help with childcare, and Melissa would spend most of her time over at her grandma's house. As a little girl, Melissa was cute as a button, smart and popular. She was feisty, a trait that reminded everyone of her mother. Colker wrote that Lynn's only rule for Melissa was to never hit first. Now, Lynn meant Andre Furtenberg, who would be the father of her second child, Amanda. Melissa was nine when she was born. While race may have been a touchy subject in the area, Lynn's parents never raised the issue. However, as Melissa became older and started to date, Lynn became concerned when her daughter started dating black men. She was particularly worried about Jordan. Lynn believed he was dealing drugs and into criminal activities. And it was then that Lynn reached out to Melissa's biological father, Mark, who lived down in Texas, to see if he might take her in. Melissa ended up staying with Mark for two and a half years until she did something that couldn't be ignored. And that was stealing her father's work van and driving it around without a license. Yeah, Mark sent her back to Lynn saying that she had outstayed her welcome and don't come back. So Melissa re-enrolled in her old school when she returned home. However, she wasn't living with Lynn. She had finished high school and she enrolled in the Continental Beauty School. In order to make some money on the side, she worked for Lynn's new boyfriend, Jeff Martina, at his new diner. Like Maureen, Melissa had big plans. She didn't want to get married or have kids until she was at least 35. She told her mother, quote, I want to take care of you and give you the things you never had. I want to walk into a store and not worry about price tag. If I like it, I want to buy it, end quote. And when she graduated from beauty school, the only job she could find was at Supercuts, and it did not offer her the creativity that she longed for. 
She started seeing Jordan again, whom her mother and Jeff highly disapproved of. Coker wrote, quote, The race thing was a particular subject for all of them, especially with Amanda living in the household and being half black. However, it was Jordan that got her her next gape in 2006, after a trip to New York City together. Melissa told her mother she was moving to the big city to cut hair for a man named Johnny Terry. Now, in the book, we meet Shannon Gilbert again, performing the part of Miss Hannigan in her eighth grade rendition of Annie. Shannon felt the role of Annie might have been more appropriate for her, her having been in and out of foster homes for the better part of her childhood. Yet she found she could channel the character effortlessly, taking real life into account. Her mother, Mary. Being in front of the audience thrilled her, and from then on, performing was what she wanted to do. Mary Gilbert had divorced her first husband and moved to upstate New York from her hometown in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Shannon was five, Cherie was four, and Sarah was three. Mary's parenting style was one of harsh reality. She did not sugarcoat anything for her daughters. Determined to raise them alone, she didn't need anyone else, not the government, not her friends, not even her family. The real problems for Mary started with a man named David, the father of her fourth daughter, Stevie. Mary's mother found out about the fights, probably from Shannon or Cherie, who would hide under the kitchen table when they occurred. The result put David in jail and all four girls put into foster care. When they were all reunited again in 1991, Mary took the girls to Ellenville, New York, to the heart of the Catskills to start life anew. It was a dying town, and the prison being the primary reason that anyone stuck around for a few years or longer. The people of Ellenville regarded Mary as rough, a checked-out mother who never seemed attentive to her children. Within a short period of time after their arrival, Shannon was back in the foster care system. She lived close to her mother's home, went to the same school as her sisters. She just didn't live with them. More often than not, Shannon would run away and go to Mary's house. She never stayed long. Mary never really explained to Shannon why she wasn't living at home, or maybe she couldn't. It wouldn't be until after Shannon's name was broadcast to the world that people learned the problem may have actually been Shannon herself. Quote, she was not only independent-minded, but willful and unstable. A lot of mood swings, a lot of overeating, a lot of binging and purging. End quote. At age 12, Shannon was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but refused to take medicine as she didn't like the way it made her feel. It made sense that the foster care was the best option. Or was it? I hate Monday morning quarterbacking on these things. The girls told it differently, though. Cherie was adamant in her retelling that Shannon's break with the family had to do with a boyfriend who was moved in when Shannon was seven. They really didn't get along, and the boyfriend would physically abuse the girls. Mary was apparently oblivious to the abuse, but believed the girls when they told her. The boyfriend ended up in prison and died a few years later. Colker said that Mary flat out refused to discuss this particular boyfriend, saying, quote, I told my kids what happens in the house stays in the house. That's a basic given rule, end quote. It's funny that the Shannon Mary describes is one who's wholly different from the friends she had in school who described her as popular, bright, energetic, talented, beautiful. Her only real problem then seemed to be being separated from her family. Trying to give both sides here, guys. 
All right. After eighth grade, Jen lived with a young foster mother, Jennifer Pottinger, who was about a half hour away from New Paltz. She didn't see Mary or her sisters as much as she had in the early years. Jennifer encouraged Shannon to focus on her education. With enough determination, she might be able to graduate early and be on her own if she wished. As Shannon moved forward towards independence, it was Mary's turn to feel dejected. However, when Shannon would continuously find herself back in Ellenville, her sisters would welcome her with open arms. Mary could do the same, or be wholly indifferent and write her off. Just depended on the mood that particular time. After graduation, Shannon found herself away from Mary's influence. She dropped out of college, seeking something grander, planning to move to New York City. Colker writes that she would audition for singing jobs, do whatever she could to make money. She would build a life that her sisters and mother could only dream about. She would become an entrepreneur, a self-made woman. She would have the best of everything. She would become their benefactor, and they would be grateful to her, and they would love her. End quote. Megan Waterman, she grew up in an impoverished area of Portland, Maine, in the neighborhood of Congress Street downtown. She was, quote, a moon-faced, bubbly blonde, end quote, and didn't seem to have a care in the world. And that's what most people remembered about her. Megan was being raised by her grandmother, Muriel, her mother, Lorraine, having lost custody when she was a baby. Lorraine's relationship with her boyfriend, Greg Grove, Megan's father, wasn't a good one. They lived in a rented room in a days inn in Westbrook. There was a lot of drinking. Things were violent. Lorraine left Greg at one point, but came back to have their first child, Greg. They broke up again later on when she was eight months pregnant with Megan. Just before Megan was born, she went on welfare and began living with her ex and his new girlfriend, Karen. Megan was born on January 18, 1988. And the stories that followed spread to Muriel, who was trying to stay out of Lorraine's life. Megan would be in dirty diapers all day. Lorraine was hitting little Greg. Muriel, along with two of her daughters, Liz and Kathy, began to write everything down. Whatever they saw happening with the baby, whatever they heard. And when Lorraine was finally accused of improper care, she displaced the blame, a pattern with her. And when Megan ended up in the hospital for respiratory distress, Due to Lorraine's neglect, Muriel filed for custody. So it's apparent that Muriel loved the children. However, she had other motives as well from what Colker heard. Lorraine was suspicious that without any children at home, Muriel and her husband Doug would lose their home since they no longer qualified for government welfare. They needed the children financially. Hmm. While Lorraine fought to keep her kids, her mother ended up giving her an ultimatum. Quote, if Lorraine signed the children over to her, she would still be able to see them. If she didn't, she wouldn't be able to see them at all. All right, the dysfunction here is real, guys. Regardless, Muriel loved Greg and Megan as her own, and Culper wrote, quote, that many of Megan's closest friends didn't even know she had a mother, and those who did knew that Megan despised her, end quote. So Megan was obviously troubled as a youngster. Both Megan and her brother were highly aggressive and sometimes downright mean. And it didn't matter if it was Muriel or the kids at school. They were always getting into some kind of trouble. Megan was diagnosed with ADHD, 
attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and was transferred to a school called PrEP for troubled kids. One friend described Megan as being honestly stupid, but in the most loving way, because it was the best thing I love about her. She's so carefree. It wasn't that she sought out dangerous stuff. It's more like she was an adventure seeker. I love that, an adventure seeker. While it may have seemed this way to her friends, to her family, she was downright dangerous. They had all heard her threaten Muriel. Quote, I'll kill you in your sleep. I'll stab you to death. Right, that's not okay. Muriel and Doug were probably more afraid of her than anything else and just didn't know how to rein her in. Joe Moser, a social worker assigned to Megan's case, who had consistently checked in over the course of a decade, said that it was amazing how little Megan had changed over time. She was still petulant, unfulfilled, angry, wounded. Muriel just fed into it by indulging her every whim, never setting boundaries, or growing in her confidence. So Muriel and Doug end up moving to Scarborough with Megan in tow. Greg did not make the move, staying in Portland and living in group homes with other families before getting a place of his home. They lived in a trailer park called Crystal Springs, and Megan was immediately labeled white trash. It was especially worse when she ended up in a troubled kid's part of the school known as the basement. Isn't that just great where you want your kid in school, in the basement? Megan became well-known to one of the Scarborough police officers, Doug Weed. You might say they even became friends to the point where he was almost mentoring her, kind of. Doug Weed met her when she was 14, when another girl had accused Megan of stalking. Over the years, there would be a lot of other incidents, mostly shoplifting. And when Megan was 17 and stopped going to school, it was Officer Weed made it known that she could always, always come to him with any problems. And he even gave her his personal number. Surprisingly, she actually used it. It was Officer Weed was the first person that she told when she found out she was pregnant by a 32-year-old guy, DJ from a bathroom hookup. So, Uriel agreed to have Megan stay at St. Andre's, which was a home for unwed mothers, for the duration of her pregnancy. Lorraine got wind of Megan's pregnancy and tried striking up a new relationship with her. The state had also taken away the other children that Lorraine had, three of them, and this appalled Megan who was struggling to maintain some kind of relationship with her biological mother. Megan said at the time that, my God, she couldn't take care of us. How come she had more kids? However, with Megan living away from Muriel, she did begin to soften towards her mother. She even contacted her caseworker and asked if she could leave St. Andres to stay with her. Lorraine wasted no time in giving Megan her side of the story, casting Muriel as a terrible mother and railing at the injustice of her children being taken away from her. Finally, in 2006, Megan gave birth to a little girl, Liliana, and brought her back to Scarsboro, which was a blow to Lorraine. All right, so from this point on, Megan and Lorraine would stay in touch, but always at a distance. Megan, now a mother herself, was forever changed. Her daughter brought out this new, tender, caring side of her but there was still something missing. Colker wrote that Megan felt a need to deliver for her daughter to secure her future while also securing something more for herself. 
a life apart from the baby, one that promised success. No matter how much she loved Liliana, that love did not cure for her the elemental loneliness that she had always had. Amber. Amber was the youngest of the Overstreet sisters born in 1983. Her older sister, Kim, was born to Al and Margie Overstreet in 1977. So, as often is typical with the youngest, Amber was the favorite and is often resented by the older siblings. Al Overstreet was originally from Wilmington, North Carolina, had moved to Pennsylvania, and was just a touch outside Philadelphia, where he met his future wife, Margie, who was a waitress at a seafood restaurant. And shortly after Amber was born, the family moved back down to North Carolina to reconnect with Al's family. And that was where most of the troubles began. Shortly after moving back down to Gastonia, Amber, who was just five at the time, was sexually assaulted by a neighbor named James. This incident is a little fuzzy in everyone's memory, but regardless of how it went down, the family moved immediately, but they were forever damaged and never the same. Kim said that Amber went on to blame Margie for the incident, although Margie was already blaming herself. She suffered a nervous breakdown shortly thereafter and separated from Al, taking Amber to Charlotte and then on to Wilmington, staying with family. Kim stayed with Al until his drinking became too much, and she moved around with various family members. A small child, Amber would never be the same again physically or emotionally, and friends recall her saying that she'd never be able to have children because of what James had done to her. Over time, the family did reunite. They all settled once again in Wilmington. Amber and Kim would get along well for the most part, like most sisters do, but when they clashed, it was usually due to Amber and the self-entitlement that she exuded. Hey, she was the youngest, right? What was Kim's was Amber's, at least in Amber's mind. And, well, why shouldn't it be? Because she was entitled. It was the eldest sister that first dipped her toe into world of sex and drugs. She met Teresa, who explained that she was in the business of entertainment for men in a company called Cohen Confidential. Kim, at just 17, had to make a hard choice. Al and Margie were both in bad shape medically and unable to work. Money was needed badly, and Teresa, seeing the hesitation in Kim, advised that it wasn't about sex, it was about the show. So Kim agreed to start answering phones. So she's getting word into this. And it's with Amber's story that we first start getting some details about the escort business. With Co-Ed Confidential, it was about the location. Most girls made about $150 an hour, sometimes more. Some of the girls were making upward of $800 a night, just like that. Teresa did the best she could to take care of her girls. The rule was one hour, no longer, unless the customer was paying for it. After 30 minutes, Teresa would call the girl to let her know how long it had been. If the girl didn't pick up, she would know to be concerned. If it was a party, the girls would not go unattended. Sex or, quote, full service was never officially part of the deal, Holger writes. However, it was never off the table either. It just wasn't condoned by the company, Teresa explained. Quote, do what you want for your tips, unquote. 
while having her lawyers write up a form that each girl signed saying that she would work as an independent contractor and Teresa was not employing her for doing anything illegal. Kim remembers that this is when it was fun. It was more fun than parties, the dancing, the occasional sex for extra tips. It gave them something they never had, lots of cash, and they were living a life of affluence they never dreamed about. Kim poured herself into work. She loved the extra money. She liked being able to support her family. And Kim decided to take the next step and go on a call. She used the name Mia. And it was only a matter of time before Amber was old enough to encroach in on what her sister had. Remember, what was Kim's, Amber was entitled to. Keep in mind, guys, that many sexual abuse survivors will turn away from anything having to do with sex. But others do the exact opposite, looking to make it as meaningless as possible. And that was Amber. By the time Amber was 16, she was already a free agent trying to charge neighborhood boys for sex. Everyone knew what Kim was doing for a living, except maybe their parents. And when Amber started, the sisters were mindful to continue to be discreet about it. For Amber, working at Coed Confidential was more about the family, more about fitting in. A friend recalled her saying that Amber'd yes to the death, anything she could do for you if you would only be her friend. She craved the connection the other girls had and desperately wanted it too. So she really needs that intimacy. Just as all things are that are too good to be true, the good times began to turn. The parties were getting larger. More drugs became involved. Kim got hooked on crack. So did Amber. But it was heroin that became Amber's drug of choice, leading her down a darker path. Now we're going to move into the part of the book called Alter Egos. Maureen's friend, Sarah Carnes, was now living with Maureen, and it, it, it took a while, but she soon discovered that maybe life wasn't going as well for Maureen as she had thought. Maureen was juggling two kids with two different dads, in addition to irregularly timed massage appointments that she would go on. After a few months, they were threatened with eviction from their apartment. But, as usual, Maureen had a plan. And the plan was to get paid for something they both enjoyed doing, having sex. Maureen had posted her first Craigslist ad more than three years ago in the Eastern Connecticut Adult Services page, not long after she had those modeling shots taken. Problem. The first few customers she had were a little too close to home, and she could bump into them at the local, you know, supermarket. So she realized she needed to go further away and set her sights on Manhattan. That's where the real money was. Maureen knew the travel wasn't ideal, that she had to make up a story, especially for her ex-boyfriend Steve, who was constantly looking for an excuse to get custody of their son, Aiden. It was her sister, Missy, who came to the rescue, watching the children when their mom was on her modeling trips. Missy knew exactly what Maureen was up to. She did not accept it, but she didn't want to alienate Maureen either. On her first trip with Maureen, Sarah saw a very different side of her friend, one that was all business, not the same carefree friend who had taken care of her in a time of need. There were rules. One, trust your gut. Geez, that sounds a little familiar, murder bookies. Two, stay in Manhattan and the areas that were allowed. 
Don't go to Brooklyn. Don't go to Queens. Don't go to Staten Island. Don't go to the Bronx or anywhere else. Maureen told Sarah that she was going to hook her up with her guy, Vips, short for Vipple, who had helped Maureen keep her Craigslist ad at the top. Vip was a low-level wannabe pimp, but there were others that he knew that might propel Maureen's career into something more than escorting, perhaps into the adult film industry. Maureen used her mother's name, Marie, and Sarah chose Monroe. She was blonde and sultry, just like Marilyn. So bringing in a friend had unintended consequences. All the calls that came in on their first weekend together were for Monroe, not Marie. And it stung a bit, and Maureen raged into Sarah, saying that it was her fault that she took a loss that weekend, and that she should get 20% of everything Sarah made, because after all, she had introduced her to Vips. Well, after this, Sarah was feeling pretty empowered, and she took matters into her own hand, got her own escort to bring her into the city, and started working independently for Maureen. Now, the girls are going to have their ups and downs. They're going to remain friends. On the verge of losing custody of Aiden, Maureen made a trip out to New York City to work with Sarah. She brought a friend this time, Brendan, someone who had a vested interest in helping Maureen make money because they were both on the chopping block of eviction. They needed $1,100 fast. They tried posting together that weekend without VIPs, and each time their ad was blocked. Possibly a VIPs angry that Maureen was trying to do business without him? Could be. After their first night not making money, Saturday turned out to be a bit more lucrative, because maybe VIPs had just given it up. So each girl took a few calls, barely seeing each other during the day. And having made some decent money, now it was time for fun. Full makeovers, new photos for their ads. And of all the memories Sarah has of Maureen, this is the one she remembered most. Both women, done to the nines, strutting their stuff around Times Square, feeling like supermodels. Of all the moments Sarah and Maureen would share, this was the one she would revisit most. So, Midtown Manhattan, Monday, July 9th, 2007. Maureen is facing eviction again. Working in Manhattan that weekend had gotten her about 700 of the $1,100 she still needed. She and Sarah are planning to go back to Connecticut, but now Maureen's starting to hedge. Staying one more night might give her more time to make the needed money. Arguing about leaving versus staying, Sarah had become the responsible one, following Maureen's rule to trust your gut. Staying didn't feel right to Sarah. It didn't feel right to her chaperone either. In the end, Sarah's instinct wins out. She decides to leave Maureen and go home, promising that she'd be back on Wednesday. Maureen says that she'll hold the hotel room for them. It would be the last time Sarah or anyone would see. Morning. Melissa used the name Chloe on the streets of New York, where she worked closely with her friend, Kritzia Lugo, known as Mariah. They would often hang around a strip called Lace, waiting for potential Johns to stumble out, and their pimps, Blaze and Mel, were supervising from across the way. Now, in Manhattan, there is a sex work hierarchy where you work depended on how you looked. 
Melissa and Crancia were considered average looking, so they ran around Times Square doing their business. The hierarchy also elevated women who had pimps, like Melissa and Crancia, who therefore also had protection. Now, they in turn despised escort service girls, who detested girls who worked solo on Craigslist. Who were they to do this without going through a service, after all? So Maureen would not have been well-liked had she run into Melissa. Yeah, if they'd crossed paths, it would not have gone well. Now, there are definite rules to follow. Coker writes, you couldn't look at other pimps. You couldn't talk to other pimps. When there was a pimp on the sidewalk, you had to walk in the street. If you stayed on the sidewalk, they could touch you. If they touched you, it meant you were out of pocket. And if you were out of pocket, the code dictated they could take your money. Hmm. So technically, you weren't even supposed to talk to other girls who had a pimp that wasn't yours. But Melissa and Crincia broke this rule every day. Melissa was her own girl. Her pimp, Blaze, he thought he controlled her, but it was herself that she actually answered to. Now, Mel, Crincia's pimp, and Blaze ran a very tight ship that left Melissa and Crincia virtually untouched due to their protection. So the girls would walk on the street past other pimps. They would steal other girls' tricks right out from under their nose. And Melissa and Crincia did everything together. Guys liked them as a duo, if you know what I mean. Uh, they even got arrested together. In this togetherness, Critzia began to understand the sadder side of Melissa. She drank to mellow out, to even out, not just to have fun. She even cautioned her friend not to take a drink when she's with the John, because you don't know where that came from, she would yell. The flip side was, Melissa seemed so trusting of everybody, as if nobody would hurt her. Lynn, Melissa's mother, recalls trips home to Buffalo, where better times were being had with her daughter. She was a grown woman now, and the animosity that existed between them in her youth was gone. And she would go out and have a few beers with them and just hang around talking. It was on one of these return trips where she told her mother and her boyfriend, Jeff, that the hair salon where she's worked had closed. And she said she was dancing at a strip club now. But only removing her top, and there was no touching. Lynn didn't force the issue, even though she really thought this was a lie. Despite what she told them, when her younger sister Amanda asked to visit her older sister in the big city, Lynn approved it. She thought maybe, just maybe, time with Amanda would somehow get Melissa to come home for good. Now, Amanda's first visit to her sister's place was in 2007. It wasn't exactly luxury or anything even close. It was just a basement apartment. It wasn't quite legal. And she had a large number of cats, which really surprised Amanda. And it was also when she met her sister's friend, Johnny. Everyone else called him Blaze. And in time, so with Lynn. Lynn did not like the way he dressed. A giant baggy t-shirt and jeans tenuously attached to the waist was the way she described him. For her, it was Jordan 2.0. Amanda didn't like Blaze either. She felt every conversation had to be centered around him and only him. It was never about anybody else. When Amanda would visit, the afternoons were hers with her sister. 
But come nightfall, she was on her own, staying locked up in Melissa's apartment, waiting for her to return. In 2008, Amanda visited again, and this time Melissa seemed a bit worse for the wear. She was no longer with Blaze. She saw through the carefully crafted facade that Melissa had tried to hide behind, especially when she left her laptop open and Amanda could see the sex work ads she was posting on Craigslist, like total giveaway. Amanda saw everything. Now, she's nine years younger than her sister. She really didn't know what to say or do. And when she went back home to Buffalo, she never told us all. Gritzy at this point is also concerned for Melissa. She just seemed sad all the time, and especially with the pressure to come home from her mom. Melissa begged Critzia to join her on Craigslist. Why should she keep giving away her money to Mel? But Critzia was scared. Meanwhile, Melissa was making more and more. She was showering her family with gifts, a spa day for her mother and sister, a new iPad for Amanda. Nearing the end of Christmas, Jeff urged her to come home too. And Melissa's response was, not yet, not yet. I'm almost, I'm almost through, almost through. The shift to Craigslist by escorts was totally delegitimizing this pimp escort system. And she asked Kretzia, why have a pimp when you can just post a photo and add yourself? But the, but the not having a pimp did have consequences. A few weeks after she returned from Buffalo, a group of girls beat her up, and this was most likely coordinated by Johnny Terry, a.k.a. Blaze. Yeah, there's no more protection. So Amanda receives a text on July 11th, 2009, confirming her next visit to her sister, and this is a visit that is never going to happen. Melissa's movements were caught by a security camera at the local bank, where she deposited $1,000 into her account, then withdrew $100 before leaving. She's seen sitting outside the building in the Bronx later that afternoon. Her phone record shows a call to Blaze. He later told police that he offered her a ride out to Long Island to meet a John, an offer she later declined. After July 12th, Melissa would never be seen alive. She stopped returning calls. There would be no answer to Amanda's text or phone calls. No one to answer a frantic knocking of her landlady when the meowing of her cats became too persistent. Lynn and Jeff attempted to file a police report, but they dragged their heels for three days. After all, Melissa is 24 years old, with no history of mental illness, no prescriptions, and just because she couldn't be located didn't mean she was missing. And the Buffalo police didn't waste much time with the family attorney, Stephen Cohen. Quote, she's a hooker. Yeah, they they weren't going to assign a detective to this. Ten days later would be the start of a missing persons investigation. They began to canvass her neighborhood, grabbed her phone records, collected a DNA sample from her toothbrush. They traced her phone to Massapequa, where after two weeks they began questioning people, finding nothing. What was the urgency now? We thought she was just a hooker. Poor little Amanda answered her phone on July 16th, thinking Melissa was finally calling her to tell her she was all right. And in a chilling end to this chapter, Colker writes, Instead of her sister's voice, she heard another, controlled, comfortable, soft-spoken. A male voice said, Oh, 
this isn't Melissa. A girl working for the world-class party girls stood out from the others with her full lips, wide eyes, and big smile. She called herself Sabrina, later Madison, and finally settled on Angelina. Alex Diaz, an escort driver, would pick up Angelina and other girls from the train that connected Jersey City to Manhattan. Most were vapid and empty-headed, but Alex paid attention to Angelina, who was well-spoken, smart, and charming. We know Angelina as Shannon Gilbert. Back in the day, a high school dropout, Alex Diaz was lured into robbing bodegas with his friends until he was caught and sent to a juvenile detention center in Jamesburg, New Jersey. Earning his GED, he began to work in private security for a guy who later introduced him to the world of driving escorts. In driving Angelina, a.k.a. Shannon, they soon started a relationship getting an apartment together. And life was pretty good, if filled with Shannon's mood swings, that Alex deftly responded to. When Shannon spoke sadly about her childhood, Alex shouted, Fuck your sisters! And she'd immediately perk up with a laugh. Shannon's family benefited from her job and the money it afforded her because she'd bring them gifts, CDs, designer clothes, a plasma TV. To Shannon, her job was a success, washing years of estrangement and tensions away. That was until world-class party girls was busted and the CEO arrested. Unemployed suddenly, Shannon and Alex argued about money, then the future, then money again. Shannon was paying for everything, but this was just until she finished her online courses, then they'd get out of this and move on. One night, a drunken Shannon was arguing with Alex, and she hit him in the chest, enough so he noticed. More squabbling and fighting occurred, and then it happened. Alex hit her, he really hit her, and the screams were real and the pain endless. Alex took her to the hospital to have her fractured jaw looked at. Shannon had two options, have the jaw wired or grafted with a titanium plate, which would probably heal faster. The plate put into place, Shannon would use an installment plan to pay for it. Uh, after the jawbreaking, their relationship was uncertain for a time. Jeez, y- you'd hope so, right? Alright, so she's furious over the jaw. Her family despises Alex because of it. Shannon, at this point, though, seems to have given up on college. Alex was never going to be her savior and take her away from all this. But nevertheless, in April 2010, Shannon and Alex went out on a date. Yeah, a true date. They they had Taco Bell, and they went to a Freddy Krueger movie, like a normal couple. However, later that night, Shannon had to meet her new driver, Michael Pack. A free agent driver who used Green Dot Transactions, which is kind of like a PayPal or a Venmo today, Michael Pack would now drive Shannon to her clients after the jaw fiasco with Alex, him being permanently retired by Shannon. Uh, Michael driving seemed a good fit for them both. And then one night when they were left dangling without clients because they didn't have seniority in the escort service, Shannon and Michael both felt that they were just wasting their time. And right near and then, they decided to go freelance. Kolker writes that Pack would ferry her calls, 
in exchange for a third of the fee, Shannon would keep the rest. Their pairing worked harmoniously, her energy and passion matching his reserve, aloof patience. So who is this Michael Pack guy? He grew up in Jackson Heights, Queens, middle child of a Korean-American family who had graduated college, but totally bombed the LSATs. In what he claims was pure naivete, he was arrested for trying to smuggle a woman illegally into the U.S. from China. After prison, he was now driving escorts. Shannon, being the fiery one who loved to argue with him, burned holes in his car seats and worked way, way, way too hard. And on date night, Shannon told Alex she had to meet Michael and later texted, I'm about to go on a call. I'll call you right back. Alex didn't remember if she ended it with an I love you or not, only he'd not be able to ask Shannon about it later. Oak Beach, Long Island, May 1st, 2010. The John tapped the window of Pax Explorer. Can you get her out? He asked. What? A confused Michael replied. She won't leave, the John said, a man named Joe Brewer. Earlier that May evening, Michael had driven Shannon out to Oak Beach for a two-hour appointment at $300 an hour. Shannon, of course, would try to extend the call. And it was into the third hour when Joe Brewer tapped on the car's window, something highly unusual for a client, because they usually shun everybody except the girl. Pat figured this guy had to be experienced or he'd be more nervous and upset, and Brewer was totally chill. At the beginning of this call, Shannon had cleared a quick trip in Brewer's car with Michael, assuming they were going to get drugs. Shannon also asked Pat to make a run to CVS for her, to pick up KY jelly, baby oil, and playing cards. But Michael refused. Oak Beach was just too far away from everything on Long Island. Shannon snapped at him, saying, I'll find my own way home, and hung up. Well, now what was happening? Michael followed Brewer into a squalid house, climbing over discarded clothes, half-eaten food, trash, and saw Shannon standing in this interior doorway. When he asked her to leave, she replied, You guys are trying to kill me. Michael wanted to laugh. It devolved from there. Michael says he tried to calm a panicky Shannon, that she eventually ran from the house in fear. Michael tried to follow her, but she veered from the dark, narrow roadway into the raggy brush. He turned on the headlights. He drove slowly, calling her cell repeatedly. This call had clearly gone to shit. Driving back to the gate separated Oak Beach from the rest of Long Island. He shouted over and over, Shannon, where are you? Shannon, to silence. Making a U-turn, he drove back and actually caught a glimpse of Shannon sprinting from another house, calling to her again. At this point, a neighbor, Gus Coletti, came out and went up to Pack, asking him what was happening, threatening to call the police. Michael urged him not to do so. They were just leaving a party and she was upset. But distracted for that instance, Michael missed where Shannon had gone and he lost her again. He wouldn't be able to find her and he would leave in frustration, assuming she'd make her way back home. He was wrong. Megan learned a lot about the world beyond Portland, Maine when she moved her base to a New York apartment at Brick Hill. Unfortunately, she left behind most of her friends as well as her daughter, Lily. 
She replaced them with New York guys, Justin, Woody, L.L., Banks, and Succession. But most significant was a King Cruz, known as Vibe, who Megan considered to be the love of her life. Others would call him her pimp and abuser, and I have to agree with them. Tall, heavy, Vibe grew up in the projects near Coney Island, he was a smooth guy with an arrest record, and everyone knew he sold cocaine. Very at ease, unruffled, Vibe gave relationship advice while demanding little in return to a friend of Megan's. While his buddy Banks, a former Megan boyfriend, had helped Megan get into escorting, it was Vibe who benefited most from her work. The story went that Vibe had rescued Megan from the abusive Banks. He was her knight in shining armor and Megan totally bought into this. Her family, however, believed that this was nothing but a construct designed to drive Megan deeper into Vibe's orbit. And in that orbit, Megan shifted from vodka to coke and ecstasy, even while celebrating her personal reliance. Completely in love with Vibe, Megan hoped for a future without worry, security for her daughter, no more trailer parks, with his mellow, unconditional love. Megan kept escorting, sometimes as Lexi or Jasmine or Tiffany, as Vi played video games. In the spring of 2009, they made their first trip to Long Island, utilizing her Craigslist ad with no way to vet clients before actually meeting them. Megan was arrested once, robbed twice, the perils being obvious so Vibe was not there to protect her at all times. The poop hit the fan with her family when they found Megan's online ads with her swearing to God she was only dancing. No one believed this, especially her brother Greg, who was just horrified and outraged. Muriel and Lorraine both agreed that Megan was an adult and she could do what she wanted, with Megan assuring them that Vibe was protecting her. And we know that is not the case. Besides, she and Vibe were getting a place together. They were getting married. The whole story is just sadly a fantasy. The reality was that they both had criminal records. Vibe dealing drugs did not come with pay stubs. And all of this would make getting an apartment really difficult. And Megan was starting to use Vibe's drug supply, which infuriated him. A friend witnessed Vibe beating Megan for ripping him off. Shocked, Megan's friend called an ambulance, went with her to the hospital, and when she tried to ask what happened, Megan snapped, Hey, I know what I'm doing. And this friend never saw Megan again. I wish this was a one-time occurrence, but sadly it would happen again, with Megan selling part of Vibe's stash and him beating her for it. Megan believed she had messed up, and she deserved what she got. This is terribly untrue. Once again, murder bookies, no one has the right to put his or her hands on you, ever. No matter how bad you think you may have messed up, how bad you think you might have behaved, nobody can put their hands on you. If you are in this situation, I beg you to get help. Use the resources available smartly. There are links on our blog. Please get help. Love does not hurt. 
or make you scared. If that's where you are, it is not love. So the Megan Vibe cycle of abuse would continue with shouts, threats, violence, and lovey-dovey reconciliations. At a point where Megan and Vibe were apart, his hotel room was raided and he was jailed. Yay! But eventually he was released because the police didn't have a warrant. Then on May 31st, 2010, a new ad for Lexi popped up with Megan telling just about everybody that she knew that this was one of the last trips to Long Island. She just needed a little more money to get Lillian into daycare and to get apartment with Vibe, who now wants to have a baby with Megan. Oh, because that will make everything so much better. Hop hog. I hope I said that right. June 5th, 2010. Megan took a bus from Portland to Long Island. The Hop Hog Holiday Inn Express's security camera caught Vibe and Megan's images around 8 p.m. And about 8.30, Megan came back alone and made some phone calls. One to Lorraine around 10. At midnight, she called Muriel and said she was going to bed. And sometime after midnight, an ad for Lexi was posted on Craigslist. About 1.20 a.m., Vibe and Megan spoke again. The security camera then caught Megan exiting out the side door of the hotel about 1.30, heading towards a service road. Megan never answered her phone, never made another phone call, and was never seen alive again. Vibe did get concerned. He called her friends. He even called Megan's grandmother. He alerted the hotel concierge. Even called the police, but he wouldn't risk going to see them in person. Of course not. Unrelated, Vibe was accused of slashing the tires of another woman and was arrested. It was a very complicated situation with other subsequent arrests and with Megan's family viewing him as the prime suspect in Megan's disappearance. Family feuds erupted over custody over Lily, and the media interviewed Lorraine as a grieving mother. This caused ruffles, but ultimately it didn't change the fact that Megan had vanished into thin air. Now, Kim and friend David Schaller were really worried about her sister Amber. Phone call after phone call after phone call from Amber down in Florida conveyed desperation and hopelessness. Caught up in drug abuse, mounting debts, dangerous men. Dave, a good, decent man whose love for Kim was unrequited, sent Amber a plane ticket to come to Long Island. Amber sold the ticket for drugs. By February 2010, things got worse, and Amber did not sell the second plane ticket Dave sent her, flying up and entering rehab. It was Dave who visited Amber every Saturday and Sunday, not Kim, who was managing her own crack addiction. Okay, this Dave Schaller is nominated for sainthood at this point. So Dave Schaller is a local boy. He graduated from high school in East Meadow, Long Island. He briefly attended Nassau Community College before teaching himself how to be a chef. At six foot tall, 250 pounds, you know, he made some money in underground fighting, stopping only after he broke both of his hands. He meets Kim in 2009 after he became a partner in his friend's used car dealership in Babylon, New York. 
He owns a little cottage on American Avenue, and he's suffering from a chronic pain condition. Dave was living fairly well between the car dealership, and he's selling the oxycodone that he had been prescribed. So Kim had given Dave a very select version of her life story, skipping over the drugs and the sex work. And living nearby was her boyfriend, Mike, and their kids who were being raised by Mike's parents because they had both lost custody. Mike was in jail at the beginning of the Kim and Dave friendship with benefits. And Dave showers Kim with gifts, dresses, a cell phone, presents for her kids. Her daughter, Marissa, would lament, Oh, I wish she would marry you so we could have a nice guy and be normal. Yeah, I wish she had too. So Dave gets to know Amber through her drunk dialing, and he really wants to help. Amber had a tough track record, though. A short-lived failed marriage, followed by her mom Margie's death in 2005. Amber married again in 2007 to Don Costello, a rare sunny spot in her story. They had a nice condo, joined a church. Amber went to work in a nursery. She and Don started to try to have a family of their own. They suffered the heartbreak of a miscarriage, and then an adoption went sideways. But via the church, they wound up fostering a baby, Gabriel, and this was absolutely the happiest time of Amber's life. But it did not last. By March 2009, the marriage ended because, quote, Amber hadn't been truthful throughout our marriage, as Don explained. And he was reluctant to speak to Robert Culper about any of this. After an arrest for shoplifting toothpaste, this is when Amber flew to Long Island to go into rehab, thanks to Dave. Out of rehab, Amber had made a new friend known as Bear, who moved in with Dave and Amber. Bear, of Swedish ancestry, he described himself as being from, quote, poor white trash moonshiners from Tennessee, end quote. All right, he became an addict and wound up serving time for breaking and entering. And now he wanted to stay clean so he could have a relationship with his son. Dave truly believes that he is helping out a bunch of screw-ups and helping to fix them at this point. And they both came to realize that Amber craves intimacy. She needs to be liked, even while jealously possessing her friends. All right, Colker gives us this example that she hated that Bear had had a child with another woman. Still, though, this closeness between them forged kind of a family of sorts that really worked for a time. Kim and Dave being the mom and dad, and Bear and Amber being the kids. But eventually, Kim starts pulling back from Dave, and he starts to really feel like he's being used. One day, Amber asked Dave if he knew Craigslist had escorts. And Dave remarked, yeah, horse, yeah. And Kim said, no, 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 escorts. Dave followed with, listen, I'm, I'm not an idiot. Well, the conversation continues with Amber and Kim probing him on what he'd think if they became escorts. And would he protect them if they did? Now, Bear and Dave, who is totally resisting the role of pimp, finally come around to the idea of being bodyguards as the women are developing their ad. Amber would be Carolina and Kim Italia, a sister's act. 
So at first, there's no touching of Carolina. This boundary is is drawn. And to make certain of it, Dave and Bear would barge in right after money was collected, screaming about shotguns and frightening the client out of his wits, and he would run away. Carolina, however, eventually develops a reputation for this rip-off-the-client act, and that created some issues, as you might expect. Kim and Amber wind up bickering and arguing, getting into fights over things. Kim remarked wrongly, If it wasn't for her pussy, I wouldn't have anything to do with her, because her fucking pussy makes money. Murder bookies, it was Bear who began to use again first. Amber was next, followed by Kim. And then one afternoon, Dave decided to try it. I wanted to cry when I got to this part of the book. It was heartbreaking. The good, decent guy trying to save them. False. Hooked on heroin, acquiring the drug was daily drudgery. Kim, ducking Mike and the kids, came over to Dave's cottage. Dave with his road rage. Bear doing Oxy and Xanax, too. Amber never sober. They spent between $250 and $500 a day. And now this is back in 2010, so that's like $310 and $615 today, a day. They're spending $14,000 a month on drugs. So think $17,300 today. How much sex are they having to pay for all of this? So any pretense of Amber not having sex is long gone. She's pulling in about $4,500 a week. They're spending about $3,500 of it on drugs. Dave closes his car dealership after selling the last cars. He's lost 40 pounds and is raging. Bear is paranoid. Amber weighs all of 80 pounds. Dave later tells Colker that, quote, he came to realize that Amber and Kim had reverted to the way they'd lived for years before he came along. This is the way they were. This was their norm. And now it was his, too. It just breaks my heart. I need a minute. I'm sorry. Okay. So, in August 2010, Bear got arrested. He winds up going through withdrawals in Rikers Prison. Amber all by herself, raises the $3,800 bail. This family that they had created is completely crashing. Bear, being a little bit more savvy, realizes that their cottage is going to be raided. Guilt over not taking care of his son got to him, so he announces that he is leaving, devastating Amber. Another betrayal, another abandonment, another piece of her heart torn away. Bear checks himself in the hospital, too ill to detox. He is actually going to be in a coma for a certain amount of time. West Babylon, September 2nd, 2010. Amber places an ad on Craigslist about 5 p.m. Nothing solid developing. On the phone with possibilities, she would usually try to upsell, describing her body, or saying she didn't have money for the rent. But the guy she spoke with this day was different. He called several times, promising her she'd walk out with a lot of money. They negotiated $1,500 for the night. 
He'd pick her up around 11 p.m. and have her back between 6 and 7. She told Dave, and he walked her down the street towards the pickup location, pausing about a block away. Hugging Dave, she went on, and he glanced back towards the taillights, too high to notice much of anything about the car. Three days later, Dave called Kim, who assured him, Ah, she'll be back. A few more days passed, and Dave called Kim again. Both are out of ideas at this point. Calling the police didn't seem like a good idea. In rehab, Bear is relentless in his harassing of his counselors to call Dave, see if Amber's back, see if she's back, see, just see if she's back. But in his gut, trust your gut, guys, he just knew. He knew that, quote, this girl is dead. And the mystery continues. And that concludes part one, book one of Robert Culper's Lost Girls, an unsolved American mystery. And episode 24. Murder bookies, we hope you've come to know a lot about the lives of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, Melissa Bartholomew, Shannon Gilbert, Megan Waterman, and Amber Costello. They're more than victims of serial killer and remain stuck up on a beach. They are real human beings with wants, needs, dreams, failings, and they have friends and family who love them to this day. Their stories also paint a sad picture of sex work the desperation that drives one's entry into the business, always going to be temporary until the plan comes through, and the desperate need for money, and the dangers associated with all of it. So join us next time for part two of Lost Girls, where the existence of a serial killer is discovered when the bodies are found at Gilgo Beach, Long Island, along this deserted beachscape of brush, bristles, and bram. We'll see the police investigation kick in, or not, and the families find out about the deaths of their loved ones as the search for answers begins. And our next book is going to be Trace Evidence, The Hunt for an Elusive Serial Killer by Bruce Henderson. Murder Bookies, I love, 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 love this book, and I hope you will be reading it with us. You know, if not, we are happy to tell the story and offer some analysis along the ways. And Tara will be back soon. Please be patient. Thank you for listening. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot us an email, Jill and Tara at MurderShelfBookClub.com. We'd love to hear from you. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Our Heart Radio, Podbean, Stitcher. Well, anywhere that podcasts can be heard. We're all over now. Let our episodes pop right up into your feed. And if you can, Give us that five-star review. It really helps others find us and grow the podcast. We really do appreciate your feedback. Until next time, Bird of Bookies, happy reading. Cuddle up a little closer, lovey mine. Cuddle up and be Written and produced by Tara and Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hoshana and lyrics by Otto Harbach.